If we just pray before we start. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for worship. We thank you, Lord, for being your community, Lord. We thank you that we can be in this room and we're all so different to each other. Lord, we're all going through various bits. And Father, not just in this room, those who might listen to the recording of this talk, maybe later, maybe even years later, perhaps. Um, who knows? Um, but Lord, those listening, perhaps via our live link as well. Father God, for every single member of this church uh, and those who can't connect with us this morning, Lord, we, we really ask for your blessing as we look at your word together, Father God, that we'll be your people, your community, your family. And that, Lord, as we speak, as we look at your word, you bless us and mold us and shape us, and that, Lord, this would be um, healing words, Lord, that why I say, Father, you would anoint by your Holy Spirit. It wouldn't be, Lord, the words of a, a broken, sinful man, Lord, that people hear, that they would hear your spirit speak, Father God, as you take what's said and use it for your glory, Father God. We lift it all for you and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll ask you a question. Um, as I often do, where are you from? Where are you from? And uh, that's the first question. You can tell me where are you from originally? Don't say the hospital. Uh, yeah, North World. Sorry. London. Yeah. Enfield. Sorry. Singapore. Okay, showing off now, isn't it? <laughs> Anybody else from anywhere else? Hart Berkshire. Very posh. It's good. Anyone else? Sorry? Kent Matching Time. <laughs> I'm not even sure where that is, actually. Matching Time, Kent, yeah. Okay, good. And then another question. When you think of where you're from, what is the stereotypical thing that defines people from your area? For example, I'm from Essex, but it's more specifically, yeah, thank you, uh, Ilford Romford Way. Now, you might not tell because I've refined my accent over the years, mainly because... <laughs> What do you mean laughing at? Mainly because I spent quite a lot of my adult life with people going, what? <laughs> and I realised that words often have a letter at the start. I hadn't realised that until I was about 25, and I started putting the, the H on heart, rather than art, and things like that. So I've refined myself, as you can probably tell, I've become a very refined adult, and, uh, which is obviously what you see every week. And, and but what I like about being from Essex is it's ever so slightly edgy, a little bit rough in places, and I quite like it. I quite like the fact that I can go anywhere in the world, and I've spoken to people from Singapore, uh, Korea, Americans, and they would all make the same joke when you say you're from Essex. They'll say, oh, do you drive a Cortina and wear white socks? <laughs> I say, come on, I'm far more refined than that. I don't drive a Cortina. I do, however, love wearing white socks. I, I haven't got one now because I'm refined, you see, and I've made a change. So what do you, what do you, what's the sort of stereotype and where you're from and what do you like most about it? Just a couple of people. We don't all shout at the same time. Anybody? Oh, sorry, I was pointing to the, sorry. Uh, Dory did have her hand up. <laughs> sorry. Oh, somebody say, hang on. Come on, everybody, everybody clap, everybody clap. <sighs> Janice, you were saying, sorry. Oh, yeah. Very good. You've obviously never been uh, to Romford Market, <laughs> which would rival any garden city, I guarantee it. So, depending on where you're from, there's lots of things that sort of stereotype you, and maybe you're from somewhere a little bit... Um, you might come from a sort of slightly rougher, a rougher area, and if you've done well for yourself, you might be secretly quite proud that you come from the wrong side of the tracks, 
And you know that because when people, you know if you, you know if you like it, because when you have a workman come to your house, you suddenly speak slightly differently because you secretly quite like it. Or when you're annoyed, your accent comes out. Maybe from a, a different part of the country, further up the country, maybe you like the fact that you're straight talking or whatever it might be. And I'm just thinking about that this morning, about our location. Um, has anyone ever done one of those DNA ancestry things where you, uh, you voluntarily give the government your DNA? Yeah, sorry. I shouldn't be very good. And that can be really good news. Are you one-eighth um, Mozambican or whatever it is? Uh, you sort of uh, got some, some strange ancestry or? <laughs> okay, so Pauline is just, okay, well, that's good. Go on, Peter. 15% Viking. Brilliant. Which 15%? Sorry, that's a rubbish joke. <laughs> like your arm. Anyway, so the point I'm trying to make, that was just for fun. Um, the first question you ask when you're lost is, where am I? And the answer to that question determines how you should feel, what you should do, whether you should be scared, whether you should run, whether you should fight, or whether you can relax. Our location often equals our, identif our identity, our identification. There you are. I've up up upgraded my ability to do pictures on a Sunday morning. I hope you noticed that. Um, and by the way, we've got, the reason we've got a telly here is because uh, the projector... It's just only showing some things because it likes to be dark and sort of slightly dim. So uh, David Mulholland's very, very generously given the church his big telly. Uh, that's not, is that not right? Sorry. Um, so just so you can see, obviously one day we will have a projector in the middle and it'll always be nice and bright. There we are. So where you're from, your location often determines our, identi our identity. Uh, me and Andrew have reached a stage of life where we tend to go out now without the children. We go out and we leave them at home, and about half past ten, the, 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 the phone, I think we're going to be sitting in here, but um, the, the, my phone will ring, and the question they ask isn't, are you having a really nice time? What did you have for dinner? Is the company good? They ask, where are you? Because actually, where we are in relation to them probably determines how they might feel or what they think they can get away with before we get home. <laughs> but location tends to matter. We've got a, a general election um, coming up fairly soon. And we should be praying about that as Christians. But you look at our politicians as they go around the country electioneering, their language, what they say changes dramatically depending on where they are in our country. Um, anyway, so and where we are can determine our emotional state, our views, our emotions. And today I want to talk about where we are in terms of spirituality, in terms of where we are and God's plan of salvation going from the beginning to the very end. Because God is doing a big work across all of human history, and we're in it somewhere. And I want to know where we are in relation to what God is doing. On Monday morning, I was praying about this sermon. You'll be pleased to know that I pray. And on Monday morning, I wasn't sure what to speak on. A whole load of ideas flood into my head. But then I had a title of a talk, and that never, ever happens. So I'm hoping that this is right this morning. It never happens to me, but this is the title of my talk this morning. Paradise Lost and Found and the life that we live in between. Paradise lost and found, and the life that we live in between. And I feel that grasping where we are in the unfolding of God's plan across history, I think is really key to us as Christians and to every human being. Because we live in a strange place as human beings. We live in a strange place because we live in between two paradises. And this is what I'm going to try and explain this morning. The Bible, beginning at Genesis... And ending in the book of Revelation that Jane read to us right at the end, really bookends the whole Bible with two descriptions of two separate places, paradise, both on earth, but paradise. So the Bible begins with a description of paradise, a perfect place, and it ends with a description of paradise, 
a perfect place. And everything in between is sandwiched in between those two descriptions of paradise. The first one takes place in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God makes the world, and in it he plants a garden. The whole world is good, but he plants a garden there. And in that garden, known as the Garden of Eden, is paradise. Humans are made to live in paradise. And right at the end of the Bible, in the last, pretty much the last two chapters, you have the description, again, of paradise. Well, not a garden this time, but a city. God doesn't plant a garden, but he plants a city. The New Jerusalem, it's called. The whole world is good, again, but into this world, there's one key place. So you've got the Garden of Eden at the beginning, where everything's perfect, the first paradise. At the end, you've got the New Jerusalem, heaven. Um, right at the end in a renewed perfect earth Eden of course is the world we should have been living in before sin entered the world Adam and Eve were put into that garden they were given a very clear command by God to look after the garden to tend it to grow it they had the privilege of walking with God talking to him seeing him face to face they then disobeyed one command not to eat from one tree they disobeyed God sin entered the world and with that first sin death came to every human being, not just spiritual death, but literal death as well. The New Jerusalem is the paradise that comes after all of human history at the very end when Jesus Christ returns from heaven. We believe he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And at the end of history, there will be a loud cry from heaven and Jesus will come down from heaven again into human history and he will gather those up that love him and he will take them to a paradise forever and ever and amen and in that paradise in that new jerusalem in heaven it'll be a place where there's no darkness no sin no tears and in the passage that jane read from revelation 21 it talks of god wiping every tear from our eyes and in the greek of that verse which i've said before i know uh, it's like a once and for all wipe so when you get to heaven god is going to do this to you and on his finger i'm ad-libbing slightly On his finger will be your final tear you will ever cry, ever. Because you will no longer possess the ability to be sad or brokenhearted or die. And that's how wonderful. So we're in between these two paradises, two chapters at the beginning of the Bible, two chapters at the end. Creation and new creation. uh, But between them, there are 925 other chapters. So there's two at the beginning two at the end, and in between those two descriptions of paradise are 925 chapters that describe all of human history. All of human history is in that bit of my Bible. Not in the sense that it will say, well, here's World War II, and here's this, and here's that, but it documents what God is doing across all of human history until the day Christ comes back to take us home. It's the account of life in a broken world and how God has come to rescue us and offer us salvation through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so the key point I'm making this morning is that we live in between a paradise that has been lost and a paradise that is not yet. A paradise that has been lost, Eden is gone, and we wait for a paradise that is yet to be revealed. We, we live in between two paradises. You see, life is not as it should be. The life we live is not as it should be, not as God created it to be. We live in between paradise. This is not paradise, and nothing we can do can make it paradise. Nothing we can do can ever make it good in the way that Eden was or the New Jerusalem will be. The best film ever made isn't that one with Humphrey Bogart, whose name escapes me, Gone with the Wind. It is, in fact, Back to the Future 2. Is it not? (laughs) What's that film, then? 
Casablanca, that's what I meant. It's just same meat, different gravy, isn't it? Anyway, of course, the best film ever made is Back to the Future 2. That's fine, because I go for the classics. You obviously go for these newfangled films. Uh, Back to the Future 1 was all right, but Back to the Future 2 is the only sequel in all of human history that's better than the original, in my humble opinion. But in Back to the Future 2, if you've never seen it, um, the story of Martin McFly and the DeLorean with the doors that do that. Anyway, he uh, goes back to 1985 with the dock, obviously. There's a picture of him there. That's the dock, obviously. That's not Martin McFly. And, uh, and so Marty McFly, um, short for Martin, um, takes, his, uh, takes a, a thing from the future of all the results of horse races and various football games or American football games, and he takes it back in the past to give it to his previous self. I'm getting distracted. Anyway, long story short, he changes all of human history. That's what you need to know. So at some point in the past, the, uh, the timeline, because of a decision he makes in the past, means that they now, when they go back to 1985, forward to 1985, hang on. Yes, when they go home, they now, le- they now arrive back an alternative... Nine t- I've lost you all, haven't I? You're looking at me like it's... Um, go home and watch, Just go home <laughs> and watch, not, watch Back to the Future 2. Anyway, it goes in the past and makes a terrible decision and the whole of, whole of history then kind of breaks and then they have to go back and change it. But the point is, if, you, if, you know, if you've seen Back to the Future, you're nodding because you already know what I'm saying. But the point is... Now, we'll get rid of the picture, I'll give up. But the point is, in the film, in the film... They live in a reality that isn't right. It's broken, it's fallen, it's twisted, and they have to try and repair it. That's the whole point of Back to the Future too. And even if you don't know the film, that's the kind of point I'm making this morning. We live in between a paradise that's been lost and a paradise that's not yet. And the life we live is a little bit like Back to the Future 2's 1985 that wasn't supposed to be. The life we live is not supposed to be. This is not the plan. This is not God's created intention for humanity to live in a world where there's death and brokenness and war and stabbings and knife crime and everything else that we experience on a daily basis. This is not God's created plan. This is the alternative reality that we have carved out for ourselves because we turned our back on God in the Garden of Eden and continue to do on a daily, almost minute-by-minute basis. And so we're going to look first at paradise lost because like Marty McFly and Back to the Future 2, there's an innate sense, I think, in every human being that life is not right, that this is not the life we're supposed to be living. And if we were to glance back at the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, we would soon realize why life is not as it should be and what's wrong, what's missing. Of course, sin is the reason the world is broken in the first place. Adam and Eve sinned in our place. We were all in them if you like, because they were the first two humans. And their sin became our sin. Their mistake became our mistake. It's called original sin. We are born with it. That's what we said last week. Eden was perfect, the Bible tells us, but not complete. Uh, I read a thing this week, and the person was saying that we shouldn't think of Eden as perfect like we do the New Jerusalem in heaven, the second paradise. We should instead think of it as a place of potential. Adam and Eve were put into the Garden of Eden to rule over the earth, to tend and subdue and spread God's rule from Eden all around the globe, to go forth and multiply, as it says. And after that sin, however, in Genesis chapter 3, we'll come on to this now, in Genesis chapter 3, all that potential, which is up there, all that potential for a perfect existence was lost. Paradise lost. They were expelled from the garden, the world broke, and we have found ourselves out of God's presence. And so this is the life we should have lived. It's a bit like when you go on a game show and they say, this is what you could have won. This is what we should have existed with. And I'm sure some of these words will resonate with every single person in this room. This is the world we should have 
uh, lived in, a world of order. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks the world into existence. He creates a world of order. He speaks, he says, let there be light. He puts the sun where the sun is, the moon where the moon is. He puts the trees where they are, gives them their role. This is what you do. You produce seeds that bear other fruits, other crops. He puts the fish in the sea. He tells them to multiply. And they do. There's a world of order. But not just in the universe, we become ordered beings as well. There is a very clear created order that works, that is good. God, then us, and then the world. How we flip that on its head. How we worship now inanimate objects, don't we? In the past, we worshipped statues and figures, and we still do across the globe. But now we worship our money and our mobile phones, don't we? The inanimate becomes where God should be, and God is at the bottom, and we are in the middle, trying to be in charge of our own lives. The whole of the order of the world is flipped on its head, and we struggle for a sense of order to our lives, and it's gone because Eden, paradise, has been lost. Goodness, we were supposed to live in a world that was good. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at what he makes and declares it good. And that word, and seven times, the number seven in the Bible is a a number for perfection or completeness. God creates a world and it is complete, it is good. So much now, however, seems to reverse. There's so little that seems good these days. In fact, what we have are pockets of goodness. Yeah, we turn on to children in need and we say, that's a good thing they did last night. But then we turn over and we see terrible things that happen across the globe. There's a pocket of goodness where there should have been the whole thing should have been completely good. We've lost that potential for a good world. We should have lived in a world where chaos was contained. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters just before God spoke and said, let there be light. He created just with the words of his mouth. He created from nothing. There was nothing but God. And then God said, let there be. And matter and time were created because God spoke. But there was that moment of chaos before God brought order to it and God spoke. And waters in the Bible is a picture of chaos. But God brings order to chaos. But now isn't it the reverse? Doesn't chaos Um, isn't chaos brought to order so often it seems like only yesterday our politics seemed to be relatively ordered and sensible and yet chaos has won the day and we look and we think who on earth do I vote for who on earth is going to lead this country anywhere but down we're never sure because there's a sense of prevailing chaos our society feels like a pressure cooker our whole world does because chaos is no longer contained like it was in Eden and paradise at the beginning We've lost that sense of intimacy with God. In chapter 2 all the way to chapter 3, we get this beautiful description of walking with God in the Garden of Eden, which should have been all of our realities. We should have walked and seen God face to face every single day. And Adam and Eve, when they sin, hide from God because they hear him walking in the garden. He talks to them almost one to one. And that's gone. We now see everything through a a dirty window almost, the New Testament says. We don't quite understand and grasp God because sin is now in the way and we've got to be away from God because he's holy and he's perfect and we're not. That's why Christ came to cover us in his righteousness so that we again can be in the presence of God. That intimacy of God has gone. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in people's hearts and they cannot fathom it. There's something in us that wants and longs for that intimacy with God, but we just don't know where it is. 
So we look for it in mindfulness and wellness and we call things spiritual that aren't. I think hoping that just kind of ticks the box inside, but it never does. As we've lost that potential for intimacy with God. We've lost the potential for abundance. In chapter 1, verse 29, we read these words in Genesis. And God said, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. In other words, I've planted a world that has got more than enough for everybody. And yet we live in a reality where the potential for full-up stomachs across the globe has been lost because you stick greedy people in, you stick um, over-farming and all those things in and now suddenly people starve when they needn't because that potential has been lost. We live in a, we're supposed to have lived in a world where there was a sense of purpose, where everybody instinctively knew what they were on planet Earth for. God says in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, but that's not just Adam and Eve, that's every human being sort of in them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increasing number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We had a created purpose to look after this world according to God's holy standard. It was a purpose you were born with, a purpose you understood, but now that's been taken away from us. And so most human beings spend their entire lives wondering what earth they're on this planet for. They wake up every morning and go to work or they retire and do whatever they do and they think, why am I even doing any of this? What am I actually here for? I've absolutely no idea because that purpose that we're inbuilt from day one has been taken away because paradise has been lost. Our sense of value has been lost and robbed as well because of our sin. Chapter 1 again, verse 26 to 27. says, And God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. And over the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. In God's perfect world there was no class system. There was no women and then men. Men weren't from Venus or whichever way around it is. Men from Mars, women from Venus. But yet how different our world has become. There was um, no class system. Everybody was made in the image of God and everyone understood that. I'm going to put a website up now, which um, you may or may not have looked at for a long time. This is Stop the Traffic, um, and it's pretty horrendous. There are 40.3 million human beings who are trafficked in our world, estimated. These are some of the things, maybe just put up a tiny bit so I get the other, is it? Um, These are some of the reasons people are taken or or tricked out of their homes. Sexual exploitation, which is the biggest one. Domestic servitude. Labor exploitation, forced marriage, organ harvesting. Can you imagine being taken from your house and having things cut out of you? Forced criminality, the drug trade, child soldiers. But just look at that. Let's just keep that up for a few minutes. This is not what God intended. This is not what God intended. God in Eden meant for there to be value for every single human being, young, old, rich, poor, however it would have worked in Eden. No one was supposed to be taken from their bed and made a child soldier. No one was supposed to be forcibly raped by somebody 20 years older than them. At 13 or 9. That's not right. No one was supposed to be chained to a bed. But that value is lost. Because Eden, paradise, has been lost. We live in this 
broken, sinful world. They're supposed to have been balanced human relationships. In chapter 2, verse 18, God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. He formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky, and I'll just cut through it. But he says, Adam did not find a suitable helper. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs. He closed up the place of his flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There was balanced human relationships. We grew up um, with a battle of the sexes, didn't we, most of us in this room? The battle between men and women. And who was going to break whichever glass ceiling first? That's not the intention, that we fight between both of those genders. Now there are so many genders. We're at war with each other almost on a daily basis, but there should have been balance between men and women. Women and men are equal, absolutely equal. And I will say this actually, on behalf of uh, any organisation, if you're a woman that you've ever belonged to, if you've ever been treated differently because you're a woman and if it was ever done by men as much as in my power to do so I apologise on behalf of my gender, because if that ever happened that's disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful men and women are equal in the sight of God and God loves every single one of us the same we mourn for these things let me put the words back up, sorry. We mourn for these things, um, these things that we had at Eden. We long for them. Human beings are so desperate for these things. If you took out the religious connotations, most people would say, I want order to my life. I want goodness. I want chaos to be contained. I want better intimacy. I want everyone to have what they need. I want purpose. I want value. I want balance in my marriage and in my family and in my friendships and in my business. And yet all of it is lost. We now live in a twisted version with those things. We search for them in all the places we probably shouldn't. And so that's paradise lost. Paradise found is much quicker. Don't panic. I know what it's like when you're sitting there talking. You think that took a long time. He's got another point to make at least. And it's 28 minutes past 11. <gasps> Don't worry. So that's paradise lost. Paradise found, really, I'll just say this. I did do four sermons on heaven recently. I'm sure you remember them. Um, I did um, all the potential of Eden is perfectly fulfilled in heaven at the end of time. And I'll just read those verses that Jane read again because they are wonderful. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is at the end of human history, this broken, twisted world that we grow up and we live in, all the pains we have at the end. He sees God remake everything. A new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. See the link? No more chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes once and for all. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne, said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done, it's finished. Sounds like Jesus on the cross. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God, 
and they will be my children. Eden had that perfect potential, but the new Jerusalem, heaven, is that potential beautifully fulfilled. And we have that tension in between the two. We long for the day when we will throw off the shackles of brokenness and sin and enjoy completeness. Philippians 1, 21 to 26, read it when you get home. Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die, well, that's gain, because I get to be in the new Jerusalem. Romans 8 speaks of a world that groans and creaks in this in-between bit, groaning for that one final moment when Christ comes down and redemption finds its fullness in the world and in us. And so we go back to that first question, where are you? Where are you from? Where are you? Well, you're in between. A paradise has been lost and a paradise that's not yet. And you may wonder, why on earth I've just spent 20 minutes telling you all of that? I'll tell you why. I need two volunteers. Dave, you wrote one of these. No, no, okay. Can I borrow somebody just to hold a bit of paper? Thanks. Cheers. So, can you hold it up nice and high? Sorry, so everyone can see. I think that's the right way around, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, actually, no, you should be that side, shouldn't you? Yeah, sorry. It's, it's not really relevant. But um, <laughs> I'm not even a perfectionist, to be honest. So, paradise lost. All that potential was there. Um, maybe you could put those words up from paradise lost. And then that's heaven. That's where we're going. And we're in here in the middle. This is all of human history. Just imagine this for a second. And imagine what I've said. Just in your mind's eye, just place yourself. I had a whole idea about string and pegs, but we didn't, didn't get time. But just in your mind's eye, just imagine the scope of human history and just place yourself somewhere in between the beginning of everything and the very end. And just place yourself there. Think of all that you're going through at this precise moment. Think of the pains you've had to go through as a human being. Place yourself somewhere in human history in God's story. And let me tell you why all of this matters. Sorry, I'll need the other one now, sorry. <laughs> because knowing where you are, knowing where you are, helps you with your pain. Helps us with our agony. Because when you realize you're here, and no longer here, and not yet here, you realize you're not where God intended, that this isn't God's plan for you. You realize if you stand here that you live in a broken world, that every atom, every cell, every thought, is, that was my Essex accent, every thought is flawed. If you understand your Bible, you know that where you stand is fundamentally twisted and broken. And you know that if you're there and you're not there and you're not yet there, you know that you should and you can expect pain. And actually it helps us it helps us understand that what we're going through isn't part of God's plan. I get slightly worried when Christians say, forgive me if you've said this, I'm not having a go at you, when they say, oh, I'm sure this is part of God's plan. There's a better way of saying it probably. But I'm not sure that God plans for us to be in pain. I think in his sovereignty he can use our pain. And I think it's God's plan to make us suffer. God doesn't make us suffer. We live in a broken world. We sometimes choose it. Other people choose it for us. We live in a broken world. God's plan is that you have hope in your pain because of where you're going rather than that. I get ever so slightly nervous when people say that. Pain, we can understand now, has a shelf life. It has an end point because a day is coming when Christ will return 
evil, darkness and pain will be thrown into a fiery lake of sulfur and destroyed. Knowing where you are between Eden and heaven, sorry that you've got your arms in the air, helps us understand our priorities. In John 6, 27-29, Jesus says very clearly, do not work for food that spoils, work for things that last for eternity. This world is short. Eden was uh, not as long as it should have been, but heaven's going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and amen. And if you could look back from that point to this point, this would be like a dot when heaven stretches out in front of you. C.S. Lewis, the writer of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, said that life is the prelude of the first chapter of the greatest story ever told that will go on for eternity. And that's your real life. That's what really matters. This is so short-lived. And actually, if you understand that that's coming and that this isn't God's plan, then you can live liberated as a Christian because you can prioritize your life according to heaven rather than a world that is passing away. You can live liberated from the tyranny of self-centeredness. You can not worry about building reputation and empires because none of it really matters. You can be liberated from the oppression of trying to build personal comforts. You see, the Christian can give everything they've got away with a smile on their face. Because who really cares how much you make here? Because it spoils and it rusts and it fades because this is your home. You're just not there yet. I'll tell you a joke. You can put those down for a second. I'll just tell this joke. Um, There was once a rich man who was near death. He was so grieved because he had worked so very hard for his money. And he wanted to be able to take it with him to heaven. So he began to pray that he might be able to take just some of his wealth with him. An angel heard his plea and appeared to him and said, I'm really sorry, but you can't take it with you. The man begged the angel to speak to God on his behalf to see if he could just bend the rules a little bit. The man continued to pray and pray and pray that he could take some of his wealth with him. The angel reappeared with some good news and informed him that God had indeed decided to allow him to take just one suitcase with him. Overjoyed, the man gathered up his largest suitcase and filled it with pure gold bars. He placed it beside his bed and soon after he died. And he showed up at the gates of heaven. An angel greeted him and uh, and seeing the suitcase, the angel said, hang on a minute, no, hang on, hang on a minute, you can't bring that in here with you. The man explained to the angel that he had permission, that he should go and ask God to verify his story. Sure enough, the angel checked it out and came back and said, you're right, you're allowed to take one carry-on bag with you, <laughs> but I'm supposed to check it. And so he opened it up, and the angel opened the suitcase and inspected these worldly items that the man found too precious to leave behind. And he exclaimed, Ooh, you bought pavement. In Revelation 22, the description of the New Jerusalem is that it will be, the streets will be paved with gold. If you don't need any more reasoning to work for things that don't spoil, it's that joke. How many people are working for pavement? How many of us work for pavement? Our priorities are often all wrong. Knowing where we are, sorry, hold on again, sorry, um, helps us with our mission. Sorry, only three more. These two paradises represent two very different missions for the Christian. In Eden, we were called to tend and care for the world. So as Christians, we ought to be people that look after our environment, that don't overuse things. But more than that, we ought to be people that are concerned for social justice. We should be people that when we see 40.3 million people sex trafficked or uh, human trafficked, we shouldn't be thinking to ourselves, it doesn't really matter because when we die we'll go to heaven or some of us. We should be thinking to ourselves, now this isn't how God intended the world and I'm going to fight 
that what the command God gave us in Eden, I carry it out. So we should be people not just concerned with preaching the gospel to get people to heaven when they die, but we should be concerned with our world and making it as much what God originally intended in the first place. These are our two missions, to care for our world and the people in it, and to preach the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ, so people can spend eternity in the second paradise. Two more. It helps us with our hope, because we know that as we're here, this is not it. We know that even at the bottom of the pit, when there seems no way up, the Christian, Psalm 121, can look up and see where their help comes from. Where does our help come from when Christ leaves heaven to come and get us? And so no matter what happens in between this and this, and some people go through horrendous things. I watched a thing about the Holocaust last night, and I cannot get my head around it. But even in those worst moments, hope is real. Hope is allowed. Hope is trustworthy because God's kingdom is going to come. And in fact, our job is to bring bits of that kingdom in now. And finally, and I mean finally, here helps us understand our purpose and identity. If you didn't know you were going to heaven when you died, if you didn't know God created the world to be all those things I've just said, you would sit in the middle of this life wondering what on earth you were here for. And isn't that what everybody does? Yet when you say God made the world a certain way and God is coming to get me, then you know why you're on this planet. You're on this planet to live out that command to subdue and tend the earth, but you're here to preach the gospel so that other people go to heaven with you. I think I'm done. <laughs> sorry. Um, we're going to sing a song called This Is Amazing Grace. Yeah, you can put those down, sorry. I think of the biceps. Um, but let me pray. Because some of you here this morning, and I don't know why God put that title in my head, because it's quite a lot to get through in one talk. But I believe there's a reason for it. And I don't believe it was just a, a thought that came to my head, because I had about seven thoughts beforehand, and they were all, I think, brilliant. But I went with this one, because it felt right. And I believe that some of you who are Christians this morning, actually, you may be listening, I believe some of you who are Christians have forgotten that your real life, this, this isn't it. I think you've forgotten that you're in between paradises and that there is one that is coming that is better. And no matter what you're going through, there is an end point to it and you can feel hopeful, you can feel joyful and even in your tears, you can look forward to something better. And some of you aren't Christians who have perhaps never even thought about becoming a Christian, knowing Christ as your saviour, uh, are putting so much of your time into this bit because you think this is it. It's gone like that. And what will you have to show for it? What is the point? Perhaps it matters for a, a short time and doesn't devalue it at all. But there's so much more God wants for you. So much more God's promised for you. Make him your king this morning. You will never regret it, I promise you. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Lord God, I'll just lift up Lord these words from this morning. Father, I thank you that you've made this world. And Lord, there is so much of it that is still good. And we give you thanks for the goodness that we do still see. Yet, Lord, we know that we have lost what you originally intended. Lord, that Eden is no longer for us. Yet, Lord, there is coming a day of new creation, of recreation, Lord, where you will remake this earth and all the darkness will be gone. Lord, our despair will be turned to hope, our mourning to dancing. But, Lord, there will no longer be anything bad. And, Lord, we don't want to be people that just shut our eyes and wait for the end so we can go to heaven. Lord, we look back to Eden and we want to be Christians who make a difference now. 
Father God, forgive us, Lord. We repent, Lord, of not thinking about 40.3 million people. Lord, if we travel, if we see people working in hotels, some of them may well be a part of that 40.3 million. Father God, help us to be vigilant. Help us to download the Stop the Traffic app. Lord, help us to be people that get incensed about injustice, Lord, but from your biblical perspective. Lord, I thank you for hope. Thank you for hope in Jesus. Thank you that we have a hope that goes beyond the grave, beyond even the final day of history. And it is wonderful. And I thank you for it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.